0: Everybody. Welcome to back, Howard David way. live as we get going on I, a Thursday big NBA game last night the opening of the Eastern Finals that game in Milwaukee but the Atlanta Hawks had other ideas as we welcome in their radio voice for over 30 years he's Steve Holman uh, I'm uh it's getting to a point now Steve watching the Atlanta Hawks play where nothing surprises me
1: no I mean it's it's, it's... it's not surprising anymore. I mean, they won the first game in New York, first game in Philadelphia. Now the first game of the series in Milwaukee. Uh, You know, I don't know how many times that's been done, uh, you know, with a lower seed winning in all three places like that, but uh, it it was amazing to watch. They got behind by nine twice in the first half. They got back into it third quarter. Then they fell down by eight again, late in the third. And it looked like Milwaukee had all the momentum. And then all of a sudden the Hawks just kept coming back and coming back. And, uh, even with you know less than a minute left, they were or a couple of minutes left, they were down by five, and somehow found a way. Trey got a three point play, the old fashioned way, and they climbed back in. And uh, next thing you know, they walked out of here with a victory.
0: Uh, am I right? Are they six and two on the road in the playoffs so far?
1: Yes, they won two in New York in the five game wow. series. Then they won three in Philadelphia. Now one in Milwaukee.
0: That's amazing. It really is because that usually is the uh, of the mark of a veteran team. And this is not, I mean, this is a team that's brand new to the playoffs. Uh, you got a 22-year-old point guard who doesn't understand the word fear. Uh, and, and look, Trey Young, in the, was it the fourth quarter? He had 17 points last night?
1: Yeah, he, he was, as we like to say, Trey <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: You know, yesterday, when we had you on yesterday, we talked about John Collins and how John Collins needed to step up a little bit more. Well, he must have hurt us because yeah. he had a solid game with 23 points and uh, and an impressive 15 rebounds and seemed to be very active the entire night.
1: Yeah, he took a lot of bottom shots, too. I mean, he was really good. He was strong under there. He was, you know, uh, he had to battle with Giannis down low a few times, and, uh, although Capella guarded him most of the time. But, uh, you know, John's a tough guy, and, and he really came up big. And, uh i think i said yesterday too one of the things about him is that sometimes he'll do a lot of things that don't really show up in the box score and uh you know last night he did all of that plus it did show up in the box score so uh you know he really he really came up big for the hawks in that one and and they still only shot 25 percent on three-pointers so you know we're still waiting for that night that they all of a sudden start to click when the offense starts to click like that uh you know look out.
0: I, uh, I'm often uh, amazed that if a team, and it happens rarely, you get three double-doubles on one team in a game. Uh, you got to figure that they that they won that game, and that's what you had last night. Not only Collins, but Clint Capella had a double-double uh, with 19 rebounds. Uh, Trey Young, obviously, with a 48 points. I mean, I mean, 48 points. People will say, well, he took 34 shots. Yeah, and he made half of them.
1: So. Yeah, and he also—I mean, you know—he had he had so many assists too. I don't have the box score in front of me, but uh, he, they said he he contributed to seventy-two of the Hawks' points between scoring and assists. Well, he did. So that's he a had a lot of points. Yeah, he had.
0: He was the third guy to a double-double: forty-eight points, eleven assists. Uh, and look, I'm always amazed uh, of Trey Young's rebounding, and he had seven boards last night. Uh, which, uh, considering where he is on the floor, that's just effort.
1: Yeah, he is. He he's, he hustles around. He he, he really enjoys the to play, and he and he really he, he just thrives on playing on the road. It seems like, and you know, in these uh, hostile environments where you know in the playoffs it becomes you know even more jacked up, and uh, you know, and, and the fact that all season you know a lot of the regular season we didn't have anybody in the buildings, <laughs> you know, so maybe that's what's picked him up a little bit in the playoffs. Here is that the the noise is there, the crowds there, and and he's able to. He's able to play off that.
0: I look at uh I look at the first half and, and I was curious to how each team would show up in the first half. Not surprised by Milwaukee, but I, I kept waiting to see if Milwaukee would take control of the game in the first half, and the Hawks wouldn't let him. Uh, as evidenced by the fact, what was it, a three point lead at halftime? So it was it wasn't much, it was still anybody's game. But the fourth quarter, and I think if I'm not mistaken. The Hawks were down. I want to say seven points at some point in the fourth quarter. Is that right?
1: I, I, it was either seven or eight. Yes, they, they did get down, and and one of them was after a, a turnover and a three pointer, and the crowd went crazy. And it, and you know, I thought that was it. Really, I mean, myself, I thought, oh boy, this is this is going to be it for, for tonight. But then they just kept coming back, and uh, that that's what's amazing about it. And and like I say, they were down uh, with only you know a couple of minutes left, and then they were still down with under a minute left. And they end up getting that rebound basket by Clint Capella that that actually turned out to be the game winner uh, on his 19th rebound. So they they don't quit. I mean, it's uh, you know it's a, a cliche, I guess, that they don't quit, but they don't. And and like we've talked about, they they really you know I don't think they know enough to be afraid right now because it's their first time in. They just go out and
0: do it. This is a league of three point shooting, and last night was not good for either. Uh, Hawks eight of 32 for 25 percent. Uh, the Bucks were 8 of 36 for 22%. Uh, look, Giannis is going to get his. You kind of expect that. But the guy that was impressive last night from Milwaukee was Drew Holiday. Uh, he was 14 of 25 in the field, including 5 of 12 from the three-point line. Had 33 points and 10 assists. He seemed to be the guy that, uh, you know, we expect from Giannis what we're going to get. But Giannis obviously has trust in Holiday because he kept looking for him.
1: Yeah, well, I I said a couple of times, you know, during the late in the game, I said, you know, Drew Holiday has saved, you know, Milwaukee's you-know-what, you know, uh, tonight. So uh, he had only been averaging 15 through the 11 games that they played in the playoffs up until last night, and people were kind of on him here. Uh, I was surprised that, uh, you know, some of the the media people here were kind of really down on him, the the way he had been playing in the playoffs. But, you know, last night not only did he score all that and, and do all that, but he also guarded Trey most of the night. So I mean, he had to work so hard on both ends of the floor, and he played a ton of minutes. And uh, he really, you know, Giannis did get thirty four, and uh, he but he kept them right in in the game. Really, if he if he didn't score
0: those thirty three, I think the Hawks might have won easier than they did. Well, you know, the key was Chris Middleton did not have a good game. He missed missed all nine of his threes, uh, and he's been he's been uh, one of the strengths of this uh, Bucks run to get to where they are today. But uh, he did not shoot the ball well, which was disappointing, and. And Middleton had a pretty decent look to tie the game.
1: Yeah, he did. Uh, he, he had a good look. And, and, and Pat Connaughton had a, a even better look. And he shot an air ball. I yeah. mean, and, you know, he's a pretty reliable three-point shooter.
0: Between the two of them, they were 0 for 13 from the three-point line. That's not very good.
1: No, and, uh, and you have to figure that's not going to happen again. But on the other side of it, you have to figure the Hawks probably won't shoot 25% again. And you may have to figure that Drew Holiday's not going to score 33 points again. So it all kind of evens out, you know, and it's about about adjustments. And and Nate really that the first half defense wasn't all that great. And then he made adjustments at halftime and they played very good defense in the second half. They kinda of ratcheted it up. And uh that's one of the great things about Nate is that, that he you know, he can make those adjustments and, and what he's done, as we've talked about before with Trey, uh, it has been really something to see. And I think the best thing in the world that could have happened to Trey was you know, not only changing coaches, but getting a coach that was a
0: a pretty darn good, tough point guard to teach him how to play that position. Good point. Um, Look, I I told you before, I'm a fan of Nate McMillan's. I think he's a hell of a coach and a better man. Uh, And I I was curious, a lot of times coaches or teams, I should say, are a mirror image of their coach. Uh, I don't see that because McMillan is so calm, shows very little emotion while he's watching the game on the sideline. And so, so it's not like he's a firebrand coach that's got that's running up and down the sidelines screaming. I mean, he's very calm, uh, and I think they, I think that turns into a positive for the Hawks.
1: Oh, I, d- I definitely think it does. He's such a calming influence in those huddles. And, I mean, he, you know, he coached his rear end off last night too. I mean, you could see him working and working in those timeouts, and, uh, you know, just talking to them and, and and writing stuff down on that little board, and uh, you know, uh, he was terrific like that and. Uh, he's he's really done a, a marvelous job with the assistants too, and you know, he kept all the assistants that were here, uh, you know, under Lloyd Pierce. He didn't change anybody, which you know a lot of coaches when they take over would probably do that, but he stuck with those guys and, and they've done a good job too.
0: I was a little surprised, and I know he's a good three point shooter normally, but Connaughton uh, just didn't have it last night from downtown, and I was wondering why uh, uh, Budenholzer didn't put in Bobby Porter's for more playing time.
1: Yeah. Well, Portis got out there and the first thing he did is he whacked Trey across that bad shoulder. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's old school. I mean, he, he, he took him out, you know, uh, early, but Trey got right back up again and you know, we know he scored 48, but uh, yeah, I, I thought Portis, because he's been around the block, may, may have, and, you know, Pat Connaughton, I, I don't think played all that much in those first two uh, series. So maybe that had something to do with it too, that he was a little tight maybe last night. I don't know.
0: And, and the other side is look you know p j tucker's primarily a defensive minded player uh but having said that, i mean that's thirty four minutes for a a pretty much a defensive minded player who gives you very little offense is kind of curious as well
1: yeah it's 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 hard to get points on the board you know when you've i mean they basically were dependent on two guys last night to, to score all the points and uh that's tough to it's tougher to win when you have to do that and you know the Hawks really had a pretty good scheme against them. I thought, uh, you know, offensively and defensively. And uh, I'm just so I'm still amazed by it uh, that that they have the gumption, I guess you will, or whatever, to to stay in these games and in in, in uh, against teams that are higher seeds than them. And uh, they just keep coming back. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of times you'll see a team go down by eight or nine points, like they did. And all the momentum's on the home team and the crowd and everything else, and they just seem to quiet the crowd every time. Whether it's Trey or Collins or Herter or you know somebody's going to hit a three. And, and last night Gallinari was was really good. I mean, on both ends of the floor, and you know he's been around. He's been in. he's he's been in uh, big games in the playoffs, and you know it showed
0: last night with him. Uh, Bogdanovich uh, had a rough night uh, shooting the ball. Uh, one for six, zero oh, for two from the three point line but
1: well that had to do with his knee i mean yeah. you know he's 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 you know he by right if it wasn't the playoffs or the eastern conference finals he'd probably be sitting right now uh, but but i give him credit for getting out there and and you know he shows his teammates that he's going to give it a go and uh you know he gutted it out last night again
0: got it uh going forward steve uh, look every team particularly the, the lower seed if they can steal one out of the first two games that's that's really your target. But I think the Hawks' mindset right now is, hey, why not? Why not go and get two out of two in Milwaukee? We can win on the road. We've demonstrated we can win on the road. And the pressure is squarely on Milwaukee. Oh, definitely. And and it's been
1: that way in those other two series, too, against the Knicks. They, they had a great shot to win game two. Uh, they had a cold six minutes or so in the fourth quarter. And then in the uh, Philadelphia game, game two, uh, they had a chance to win that game too so i i think that's their that is definitely their mindset i don't think they're just happy that they got the split that they were looking for uh i think they want to try to you know put the pedal down and uh go into atlanta because Atlanta's going to be in a frenzy uh on sunday and tuesday i mean it's it's going to be something because you could just tell by uh the number of people that are trying to find tickets online and you know stub everything else and the 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 social media is going crazy and uh, you know, it's great for the town. I think it's great for Atlanta that they're getting this. Great for the Hawks because for so many years, you know, they were kind of like the third team behind the, the Braves, Falcons, or maybe even sometimes the fourth behind the Georgia Bulldogs. You know? So uh, this, this is terrific. It's a, it's a Hawks town right now.
0: I yeah, I remember those days, Steve, <laughs> when I would go into Phillips Arena and with with uh, when I was with the Nets or the Bucks or even with the Celtics, that it was quiet in there. Uh, look, and and the Hawks have had good teams in the past, you know, with Dominique Wilkins and that whole crowd, but this is a whole different age, a whole different day. And you're right. I think the fans in Atlanta are buying into this team. I think, uh, you know, is Trey Young getting a lot of credit? Yeah, he deserves a lot of credit because he is led by example. Uh, he's, he's proven to be an outstanding leader. Uh, he, he gets his own. He takes, you know, some people would cringe when he takes some of those, long distance threes but he makes enough of them to keep you interested and then when he goes right,
1: and to the nate, and nate lets him do it you know yeah. he lets him be him That's yeah just, uh, you know you're going to take the good with the bad on that
0: yeah there's no question and then when he goes to the basket and one assist he had last night where he purposely threw it off the backboard above the rim it was not a shot attempt that was a clear alley-oop pass to capella who delivered
1: Oh, yeah. He's, he's done that before. I mean, and, you know, that was definitely a designed uh, shot off the glass and, uh, you know, it turned into the it was it was executed perfectly. So that that was nice to see, too. That, that was fun to see. I've noticed that's been on a lot of the highlights, Sports center and such today. So uh, and his three point shot where he did the little shoulder
0: shimmy Yeah. Uh,
1: <laughs> when he was left alone there. And basically, he made a set shot. I mean, How many
0: times do you see that? Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I'm thinking to myself and I'm watching that play. And I'm saying, uh, hello, do you guys not realize who's out there all by himself? Nobody was within <laughs> 10 feet of him.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think everybody got a little confused. He, I think he was surprised he was so far open, too. That's why he waited to to take the shot. Now, of course, after the game, he said, they said, what about the, the shoulder shimmy? Why did you do that? He said, well, I, he said I was tired and I needed to get, a, get catch my breath a
0: minute when, and I noticed I was alone out there, so <laughs> he said I took my time. Are you uh, at at all surprised? with what you've seen from this team to this point, uh, more in the postseason than in the regular season? Uh, Yeah, I mean, because, uh, you know, I like everybody
1: else figured, uh, as we've talked about, I think that, you know, it, it would be great if they could make the playoffs, get that little playoff experience, get their feet wet in the playoffs, you know, have that taste of it so they can go into next year and be healthy and DeAndre Hunter will be back, Cam Reddish will be back at 100% you know Chris Dunn who didn't play all year is going to be 100% when they start training camp again so those are three key guys that they were kind of counting on a lot this year uh, that'll be back to add to the mix that they have right now so i thought that they could go into next season really with a lot of momentum after having a a regular summer league for the young guys and and then a regular training camp and but they're just so far ahead of it now and and they've reached the point now where where they say you know what the hell let's go let's let's do it you know i mean you know why should we wait
0: Hey Steve, when they, when they first the, when people evaluated the opening series with the Knicks, a lot of people, particularly in New York, say ah, the Knicks are going to win this series, and look what they've done. And Thibodeau is a great coach, and and Julius Randle's having an a, an all star year, and all of that. And I'm sitting here. now. I have no horse in the race. Uh, I, I'm not a Knicks fan, and I'm sitting there watching the and reading all these articles, and I'm saying, you guys don't realize who you're in, who you're playing against, because. <laughs> You know, the the Nick Nick the Knicks fans by history tells us that they see things brighter than they really are. Uh yeah. they made tremendous progress from where they were to where they are. The projections this year was that they would win 25 games. They won right. 41 games. They deserve a lot of credit. Thibodeau deserves a lot of credit. But let's not go crazy. Let's not let's not think that all of a sudden we're gonna challenge for the title. You get by Atlanta, then maybe you can talk a little bit. Uh, but, you know, looking at it from the Hawks' point of view, you know, beating the Knicks was just a step. And most people figured they would lose to Philadelphia. I was not one of those people and because Trey Young started to catch my attention early. Right. Uh, and, they,
1: you know, they have been, they've had the confidence of it. And, you know, one of the things that's kind of motivated them, too, right now is the fact that through those first two rounds, especially, it wasn't so much about what the Hawks had done. It was like, oh, what happened to the Knicks? What, why were the Knicks bad? What, what was Philadelphia's problem? You know, Ben Simmons and this and that. And, and it was nothing ever about the Hawks. And the Hawks guys were like, hey, wait a minute. You know, we just beat two higher seeds. And all they're talking about is the other team. So, you know, I think they've used that as a motivation now, too.
0: Absolutely. And let's look at it from the big picture. Philadelphia, number one seed, gone. Utah, number one seed, gone. Uh, you know, you may see... You may see a five seed playing a two seed for the NBA title. Right, <laughs> it's not impossible. Be something. I, I think if, if you know if it ever came to a Phoenix
1: Atlanta, uh, you know I think that would be exciting. I mean, and the and the ratings have, have proved out that you know how the experts usually say. Well, you know you have to have the Celtics or the Lakers or the Knicks. Or something. The ratings were so high on Sunday night for that uh, Philadelphia Hawks game. They beat the U.S. Open. Uh, you know, so I think people are watching. I think they like Trey, and I, li- I think they, this is a likable team.
0: Well, that that's part of it, uh, a big part of it. Uh, but the NBA is doing very well. Uh, it, it, everything, every night is you can't predict what's going to happen. Certainly this year, more than any other year. But you know, here's a here's a, a Hawks team that's captured the imagination. Here's Trey Young, who's captured the imagination, and he's become a household name.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's, he's doing a lot of this. And, you know, Vince Carter was – I saw him on TV this morning on ESPN, I think it was, and, uh, you know, he played here for his last two years. So he played with Trey, and he was telling them today on, on one of those shows that, look, you know, this is what I've seen for two years from him, uh, and he's just really blossomed now in the playoffs, but I've seen a lot of this from him over the last two years. It's just nobody's been watching him. And, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, you know, he's, he, he's, he's the, the new greatest thing. But – in Atlanta, we've seen him for three years. So uh, I think it's nice that he's getting the attention, uh, that the team is getting the attention. And uh, I'm pretty certain we're going to get a lot of national TV games next season.
0: Yeah, well, you're dealing one step at a time. Uh, you know, much has been made of Giannis' uh, whole theatrics he goes through at the free throw line. Uh, it, it Was it me, or did he cut that short a little bit last night? Yeah, I think he did,
1: because I think they, I think the officials talked to him about it. Uh, because every team that they've played in the playoffs so far has made an issue with the NBA about it. you know, And they've talked to the NBA before the games or the series begins and say, look, you've got to tell these officials. But they still, if you notice, they let him do his thing before they gave him the ball uh, last night again, which I don't understand. Why don't they just give him the ball, and then if he does all that stuff, start counting? I agree. The funny thing was last night, I, I don't know if you could hear it on the TV, but everybody on the Hawks' bench, every time he got the ball, started one. <laughs> Two, three, well, you know, it was great. It was funny.
0: Well, what's good about it is that everybody in the Hawks' bench can count to ten.
1: That's right, exactly. <laughs> they might even be able to do it backwards. <laughs>
0: no, I look. Is it all part of the uh, all part of the story? Yeah, of course. But people come to see stars, and Giannis Compo is a superstar. Uh, Trey Young has not gotten to that level, but he ain't far away. And not, I mean, you start creating legend. In the playoffs, not in the regular season, and he's starting to create a little bit of a legend. I mean, to the point of where Reggie Miller was saying last night, uh, I mean, he's he's like a big fan of Trey Youngs because yeah. he shares something. You know, Reggie Miller was public enemy number one. He is Trey Young very much the same.
1: Right. Exactly. And so it's yeah, he's taken to it and he loves it. And uh, I, I think it's great that he's getting the attention finally now. Uh, and, and you know, uh, people like Kendrick Perkins it has kind of been on his side all year. So that's the, you know, he's been one of his cheerleaders. So now he's, he's happy right now too. You know, he's telling everybody on Twitter and everything. So, uh, it's been fun and you know, it's just one game. I mean, we have to remember that it's just one game. It's a, you know, you have to win four in the series. Uh, but they certainly took a big step in the right direction. They got home court back. Uh, and now uh, all they have to do is split six games and
0: Milwaukee has to win four out of six. When you put it that simply, you know, it sounds a little tougher that way. Steve Holman, the longtime radio voice of the Atlanta Hawks, what did Mike McMillan say after the game last night? Were you able to hear his post-game press conference? Uh, yeah, I heard, I heard some of it. He said that the, he thought they were, he
1: thought they were kind of running in mud in that first quarter, especially, uh, and then uh, they kind of, he said they kind of woke up after that, and then in the third quarter is when they really started to, uh, you know, to get back into rhythm after playing that uh, seventh game on Sunday, that was pretty much, you know his main theme.
0: I don't know if you heard it. Uh, Rick Carlisle has been uh, hired to be the new coach of the Indiana Pacers.
1: Yes. 29 million for four years. Not a bad job.
0: Oh, Hey, Rick is, I, I know Rick. Rick's no fool. <laughs> Trust me. Yeah, I mean, no,
1: he's, he's a great guy. I, uh, you know, he, he was Larry Bird's assistant there in Indiana. Uh, you know, of course all his time in Dallas now. So uh, he's the, the pride of
0: Augsburg, New York. Uh, Rick Rick Rick, is, Rick is uh, he was, when I was with the Nets, he was Chuck Daly's right hand. He was yeah. the guy that Chuck leaned to and say, what do you got? Whether it was offensive or defensive, it didn't make any difference. Now, the reports are that he and Luka Doncic didn't get along. Well, I don't know that to be true. I don't know that to be not true. Uh, but it, it was out there. Uh, yeah. it, it, look, Rick Carlisle has been with the, was with the Dallas Mavericks for 13 years. And there's a lot of discussion that, you know, Becky Hammond, who's been sitting next to uh, to 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 uh, to Popovich, Popovich yeah, yeah. But, and so people are saying, well, maybe she's going to wait until Popovich retires. Trust me, if she gets a job offer for one of the remaining jobs that are out there, she's going to jump at it.
1: Oh, of course, yeah, she'll take it—that's for sure. Uh, I, I think people were a little surprised today too that maybe they thought Carlisle was kind of holding out for this job, the Milwaukee job. Uh, but you know, now that. They moved into the Eastern Finals. Maybe that seems like uh, Coach Bud's going to be okay.
0: Well, it's not only that. I mean, he, here we go. Uh, you know, the, the Boston Celtics have a new head coach. Uh, yeah. And it's, again, it's all about relationships. Uh, right. They they, uh, they finally, they're going to get a coach that has a relationship with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. And that's really all you need. We're talking about, uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing his name. It's Emmy Udoka. Right. Uh, uh, look the the guy's got credentials he's not just a guy who just walked in off the street he's been around he's been with franchises in the past uh he's and been players with, to really like him so yeah he he was with san antonio for seven years he was with philadelphia he's been around he's had playing playing uh when he was a player he was with the lakers he was with the blazers he was with the kings he was with the knicks and he was with spurs i mean he's got credentials so uh, you know, most of the people in Boston figured that the Celtics were going to hire a black coach, and it turned out that way.
1: Yeah. Well, I think he's got the credentials, though. I, I don't think it. You know, I don't think it really mattered at that point to uh, to Brad Stevens. So, uh, you know, I think he's. I think it's good to get some new blood in these uh, coaching positions too. So. Uh, we'll see how he does. Oh,
0: you don't think recycling the old guys is a good idea? <laughs>
1: uh, well, I mean, there's going to be a lot of that too. That's always going to happen. But uh, I think it's good to get some new blood in there.
0: Well, you still got the Dallas job that's open. You got the Portland job that's open. You got the Orlando job that's open, and the New Orleans job that's open. Uh, of all of those, I think Dallas is a very attractive landing spot for some coach.
1: Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, if you got Luka Doncic there. Uh, you know, if you think you can be the magic elix elixir for him, if there were problems there, which we don't know for sure, but that story in the athletics said there were, I mean, if you think you can you can be the magic man for him, that's that's the job, I guess.
0: Although they don't have a great cast around him, they're going to have to do something about that. Yeah, and I think they will. Uh, I'm a big fan of Mark Cuban. I think he's I think he's really got a, a great way about him. And really knows. Yeah, and knows, he wants to win, so yeah, and, he wants to win and he's willing to put. Make sure it, they do the right thing. Yeah, and he's willing to put uh, his money where his mouth is. So uh, there's not a question about that. As for Portland, you got Damian Lillard, all right, superstar. You got McCullough, uh, although McCollum rather. I'm not so sure McCollum's going to be a blazer come next year.
1: Yeah, there's there's some rumblings about that too. So you don't know. and uh you know the, the the Pelicans job is open uh but you don't know whether Zion is happy or not uh, the, there's been rumblings there too that he may when when he gets his first chance to leave that he might leave so uh, you know those are some of the things I guess these coaches have to think about
0: you know it's interesting I had a conversation last night Steve with a friend of mine who's an avid Knicks fan and I said to him I said you know what the Nets went further than the Knicks but the Knicks are the story right now. I mean, it's not so much the Nets lost. it's because, Everybody understands they lost because of the injury factor, a major factor. But it's, it just tells you how big the Knicks are in New York. They show a slight pulse, and everybody jumps on it.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, we'll see what happens here, Howard. We got uh, our old buddy
0: Scotty Hastings is uh, waiting on me right now to talk to him in Denver. He's got a big talk show there. Well, he's he's you know he's, he's a big star in Denver.
1: Yes, he is. He was. He was. He was a good hawk, too. I'll tell you. He was
0: one of my favorite Atlanta Hawks. Yeah, and he, he's a little irreverent.
1: Yes, he's good. He's good on the TV. I
0: like him. <laughs> oh, you take care, Steve. Thanks again for your uh, time. You stay right, safe. Right,
1: thank you. It's always a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Steve Holman, the radio voice, the Atlanta Hawks. If you don't think Mike Budenholzer, the coach of the Milwaukee Bucks, is feeling the heat, you're sadly mistaken. He is. He knows it. And I hate when people talk about, well, this guy's job and that guy's job and la-da-da-da-da. Look, he's a big boy. He's an adult. He knows what the story is. He knows the landscape. And then he knows better than anybody. And he's got to win game two tomorrow night or he's in deep doo-doo. You do not want to go back to Atlanta down 0-2. I don't care who you are. I don't care who you have. Because trust me, When the heat gets intense on a player, as great a player as Giannis is and Middleton is and Holiday is and all of that, when you feel late in games that we have to win this game, all of a sudden this tightens up a little bit, the fingers are not as nimble as they were, your back gets a little tighter, the knees start aching a little bit, you don't jump as high as you did before, all of that's true. So the pressure is on the Milwaukee Bucks tomorrow night. I'm not saying anything that's that revealing, but it's true. Here is a team that was expected to make some noise. Now, personally, I thought that Brooklyn was going to beat uh, Milwaukee. I really did. But I didn't realize those injuries were going to be that severe and they weren't going to have Kyrie Irving. You know, if they had Kyrie Irving, they probably would have won the series, but they didn't. So you deal with who you have not with who you wish you had. Bucks to care of business. Simple. And they had to go to overtime to beat the Nets in Game 7. Kevin Durant was magnificent in two games where he played the distance. He went the distance twice, 48 minutes in Game 6, 53 minutes in Game 7. So it's not on Kevin Durant. It's not on James Harden. He wasn't 100% it's not on anybody it's not on the coaches it is what it is the bucks were healthier and having said that that's all you need to do to describe what has happened so far i um uh, i think when we talk about great writers my favorite in new york is mike Vaccaro of the new york post i make no 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 bones about it uh mike is um not only a great writer, but he has a good sense for what it's all about. And we're going to talk to Mike Vaccaro next as we move along on Howard David Live. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple. Hey, Howard. We're going to take a bite of the Big Apple with the great Mike Vaccaro. How are you, Mike?
2: I'm doing great, Howard. How are you doing?
0: I can't complain. Nobody cares, you know. I care. No, no, no. I mean, I, care. I-
2: I care deeply. I do. I care. I want to know how you're doing.
0: No, I'm doing. I know. I appreciate that. But I'm thinking back <laughs> to that. I'm thinking back to Chaz Palmentieri in the Bronx Tale, when he says, oh, yeah, to, "I
2: know. I knew where that. I knew where
0: you were going." Yeah, and he says to Cologelo, uh, "That uh, you know nobody cares." But you know, you're right. Uh, people care. Islander fans care. What they did last night was, I rarely have seen a team get their butts beat in eight to nothing. And come back and show the resolve to to win a game in overtime.
2: Well, it really is kind of the hallmark of what the Islanders have been this year. I mean, they've been through a lot. They lost their captain, you know, midway through the season, Anders Lee, and you know, they they, they were behind in the first two playoff series, also two to two games to one. Came storming back. Now, obviously, eight nothing is eight nothing, and I mean, that wasn't just your average eight nothing game. That game could have been twenty nothing if the Lightning wanted it to be. It was a complete slaughter. But uh, you know, look, I mean, I you know. I was at the Coliseum last night, and and, and, and you know, I knew from the moment people started to show up, it was going to be a lot different narrative. I didn't necessarily think the Islanders, you know, had the bag to win the game. And certainly when they were down 2 nothing it looked pretty, you know, pretty grim and ominous. Uh, but uh, that place was electric, and you know, you, you know how playoff hockey can be, Howard. I mean, sometimes the combination of a feisty team and a loud crowd can really, you know, do some magical things, and I think we saw that last night.
0: The uh, the intensity of playoff hockey, I think, is unmatched. And I'm not saying that it's more intense than the NBA or more intense than the World Series or or, or in the NFL and the Super Bowl, but playoff hockey, for some reason, just impresses me as being incredibly intense, obviously very physical. And the way that they're moving on their skates, I mean, it's like a train wreck, night in and night out. Well, you know, the
2: thing about hockey uh, that, that I've discovered through the years and that You know, unfortunately, I don't get a chance to cover hockey as much as I do the other three major sports, but, you know, whenever I can, I do try and dip my toe in the water with hockey because I do like the sport a lot. But the thing about, you know, hockey, I mean, you know, think about the culture. I mean, most of your, most of those players, even the best players in the world, if you told them, you know what, we're going to play for a keg of beer in a frozen pond someplace in Saskatchewan, they'll be like, I'm in. And they play that game like it was game seven, the cup finals. And so it it only makes sense that when you actually have real stakes in the table, like you did last night, like you do in the entirety of the Stanley Cup playoffs. to that intensity which is just a part of who they are. It's part of their DNA that it gets ratcheted, that it gets ratcheted up, which is the reason why, you know, so often at the end of these, like blowout games or one sided games, you, you you see 10, 15 fights because, you know, these guys put their entire being into these games. Um, and, and I don't mean to make that sound unfair to other athletes in other sports. It's just different. You just don't see it in baseball. Baseball is, is a placid game compared to hockey, and even basketball. It's a it's a highly skilled game that, you know, if, if you play in a basketball game like a hockey game, I mean, guys would be dead on their feet by halftime. You just, you just can't do it. And so I think that's what makes hockey so unique.
0: So Anthony Bouvier is running for mayor of Long Island. Is that right?
2: Well, I think he'd win unanimously if he ran this morning. I'll tell you what. Um, He, uh, he I mean, you know, it's a great story. One of the great things about this team, Howard, is that there's like, you know, on any given night in this playoffs, I mean, another guy, you know, steps up and says, I'm going to be the hero tonight. And it was Bavillier's turn. He was due. He'd been 10 games without a goal. Uh, He's just one of the most reliable performers they usually have during the course of the regular season. And, uh, you know, he took advantage of of a moment. You know, he he said afterward that he felt like he blacked out. And I think that he was almost joined by about 13,000 people who didn't quite know exactly how to channel their joy, so they started throwing their beer cans on the ice and in, a, in a show of in a show of, of joy, which is kind of a curious choice, but uh, but uh, you know you know in, in the moment it's in the moment it actually seemed perfectly plausible.
0: You know as well as I that you don't win unless you get good goaltending, and goaltending last night. I mean, you got 22 stops out of 24 shots. Uh, that's going to keep you in a lot of games.
2: It is. And, you know, look, he, he was pulled in Game 5, gave him three goals, two of which were just fluky. You know, sometimes, as much as I love hockey, I mean, you know, half the goals that are scored a lot of times just seem like complete fluky, you know, you know, lucky bounce jobs. But, you know, it, it was smart to take him out. There was, there was no way the Islanders were going to recover uh, down 3 nothing. You could just see that was a game that was going to belong to the Lightning, and it was just best to – to get him out of the line of fire, which I thought was a great coaching move by Barry Trotz, um, and you know what? It, 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 it paid dividends. I mean, the uh, the three goals obviously caused the Coliseum last night to explode the loudest, but there were four or five other times when Marmalot made a stop, you know, made a stopping goal that really seemed to take the crowd's breath away and and really kind of I, I thought kind of energized not just the, the crowd but the team as well
0: taking a bite of the Big Apple as Mike Vaccaro saw the Islander game last night. And, you know, there was, I saw an interviews last night with some fans as they were leaving the Coliseum. Uh, You know, maybe this is the last game that's played at the the Big Barn and maybe not. And the fans were saying, oh, no, 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 there's going to be more. But when you haven't won a title in 38 years, I mean, that drought starts to hit you after a while.
2: Yeah, it does. And especially because, you know, one of the things about playing in that facility is that, you know, you, you definitely sense the ghosts. I mean, you know what went on there. I mean, you know, I would argue that those Islanders teams were the greatest dynasty in the history of sports, let alone hockey, when you consider the fact that you know, that team won 19 consecutive playoff series. When I mean, you think, you know, we just talked before about the nature of hockey series and how high-intensity they are, I mean, that number seems impossible. And yet they won 19 consecutive playoff series from, you know, the first playoff series of their... Uh, of their of their run you know right to, 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 to when they finally lost to the oilers in uh in 84. and uh, that team is a constant presence there i mean you see just as many trache and bossy and clark gillies jerseys now you know as you do bevillier and barzal and barbalov and you know it's, in, in case you missed it i mean there's all those retired numbers there's all those banners i mean you're looking at them every night so it's a you know it's 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 a it's a I think it's, it's, it's almost been a millstone for some you know, weaker will teams. But I think that's what's great about this team is that they almost embrace that. They, they badly want to be included in the, you know, when, when the final history of the Islanders is written, they want to be able to be you know, spoken of along the same lines as those four championship teams. And that's what's kind of fun about this group.
0: Yeah, well, four titles in the 70s. Al Arbor was a great coach. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm coaching my daughter's travel soccer team when we lived on Long Island. And before the game, uh, I'm talking to the referee. And he said, uh, do you know who one of the players is on the other team? I said, no. He said, it's Al Arbor's daughter. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> like, okay. And? <laughs> so uh, he said, well, you know, they're pretty good. And I said, uh, and this is what the referee's telling me before a game. They're pretty good. <laughs> uh, uh, we won 4-1. to one. <laughs> There you go.
2: Yeah. That was It was definitely the coaching,
0: Howard. Definitely the coaching, I'm sorry. I don't think it was the coaching. I think it was the motivation. I said, oh, yeah? <laughs> there you go. That's, look, that's all you need sometimes. Yeah, look the, look, the last championship won by any New York team, as you all know, was the Giants, and that was nine years ago. Uh, Yankees, who were struggling last night. And by the way, before I go past the Yankees, they won a game last night uh, in the bottom of the ninth. Luke, Luke Voigt um, was tremendous. Sanchez is the home run in the bottom of the ninth. Uh, Chapman blows the save in the top of the ninth inning, okay? But he gets the win, and I'm thinking uh, that that rule's got to be changed in baseball, doesn't it?
2: Um, well, yeah. I, I mean, I I've I've thought that since you know forever. I mean, it does skew you know the number of wins, but you know wins mean wins are so insignificant in the big picture now, as opposed to how they were viewed even 25 years ago. That I think yes, and in, in the interest of fairness, you know, I mean. In, in, in games where starters can go five, and there's multiple pitchers, the official scorer has the, the discretion to award the wins to the, to the pitcher who pitched the, pitch the best. And I think that's that's a quintessential example of you know they, you know if an official scorer's powers in that regard were broadened, I mean you would probably pick somebody else. You know you, you, you know um, I'm not sure it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Chapman, it wouldn't be Zach Britton, it wouldn't be. Michael King necessarily, but uh, you know Shane Shane Green should have should have gotten the win. He pitched great last night, you know. Look, but uh, that's just kind of not uh, the way things are done now. But but I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be sad if that if that was implemented somewhere along the
0: line. You know, baseball actually is that is coming under a lot of scrutiny. Obviously, with the uh, sticky stuff, for pitchers and and the joke that some pitchers are making out of it, a guy dropping his pants the other day on the mound for the umpires to get a look. And I'm thinking to myself. Uh, Rob Manfred's got a big job in front of him because there's a a credibility question now that I'm looking at Major League Baseball. The game is slow. We know that. And when you see a a Rodgers Chapman pitch, uh, I could take a nap in between his pitches. And it's frustrating for me to watch, Mike, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Look, I'm, I'm a Yankee fan as much as any other Yankee fan in New York. But after a while, it gets to a point where you're saying, get on with it already.
2: Yeah, time was. It was just Yankees Red Sox games that seemed to last literally forever, um, and now it's a lot of these games. And yes, a lot of these things that they've implemented, you know, do make it. You know, I mean, replay definitely adds time to the game. Um, this certainly adds time to the game, especially if there's going to be shenanigans attached to it. I mean, I get it. There, the, you know, there was a there was a call to make the game more equitable. It was kind of running away with pitchers taking advantage of the notion that. I and mean, look, pitchers have always been able to use kind of sticky stuff for the very reason that, you know, that, that it's intended to because they don't want to – they want to at least have an idea where the ball is going. But then it became weaponized, so it became different. And I think that's when you had to make a move similar to this. But, you know, this would kind of be like, you know, when baseball decided to crack down on steroids. If, as, you know, the teams came off the field, if one random player was suddenly, you know, asked to – to pee in a cup <laughs> you know. In front, I mean in, in front of God and everyone I mean it's 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 uh it, it just seems so bizarre it's so different from what other sports do and it's just you know if that's going to be baseball's look right now it's just a very bad look.
0: Well what's even more uh more glaring is look I'm not going to pick on officiating but I counted at least four times last night where a pitch was so far out of the strike zone and was called a strike. And I mean, one Aaron Judge who had a horrible night last night. He struck out four times, but one time that pitch was so far below his knees it was not even close, and he was called out on the pitch. And I'm thinking, and and typical of Judge, you know, he wouldn't, he didn't make a big deal about it. He walked over to the umpire, he whispered something to him, and then he walked to the dugout. But At some point, we've got to have some kind of a, uh, and I'm trying to think of the word, some kind of a fail-safe system. We talk about replay, making sure everything is correct. Uh, I guess you don't want to get into a situation of questioning or challenging a ball or a strike.
2: Well, I think it's it's pretty clear that once the technology is perfected, that you're going to go to automatic balls and strikes on fires which you know i you know i i I wish didn't have to come to that but you know more and more i mean especially now that they've implemented the strike zone in most baseball telecasts i mean just see how many of these calls the umpires miss and uh you know it's 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 sad to say because i mean balls and strikes are really the last domain that umpires have any kind of authority you know you're still not allowed to argue balls and strikes uh at least according to the rules and uh you know they. You know, they can they can take their you know, they, they they don't need to be perfect on a call to first base because if it's overturned, well, the video will prove, and there's no consequence if you're wrong, um, and so I mean to me, I mean it would be a very sad day when balls and strikes are handed over to a robot, but it also seems inevitable because you know, one of the job is just harder now than it used to be because of the way pitchers throw, you know, I don't, I don't know if Jack O'Connell necessarily saw. 93 mile an hour sliders in his day, which you know, has to be difficult to be able to adjudicate. but whatever. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just a shame. But I think that in the interest of getting things right, that's kind of have to be the way it goes. Uh,
0: the Mets are, uh, are uh, being hit now with injuries, particularly their pitching staff. Uh, but Jacob deGrom is without question the best pitcher in baseball right now. As a matter of fact, you might even go so far as to say he could be top five pitcher all time. Uh, am I going too far? I want to
2: see it a little, a little longer, but I mean, gosh, his, his stats are otherworldly and his, you know, the electricity in the ballpark when he pitches now is just, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to top. It's just, it's remarkable. And, um, you know, so there's, you know, I, I definitely think, I mean, look, the way things are going, I, I think he'll probably crack, you know, a hundred career wins, but you know, if he pitched this way for five, six, seven straight years in a row, and his career ends, and he's at you know, 98 wins. I mean, he's probably the first starting pitcher in history to get in with that, to get in the Hall of Fame with that low a total. That's how dominant it is, and that's how dominant most of his modern numbers are, the whip and the, you know, the FIP and all the all the other stuff, and certainly the ERA+, which is just something from another planet. Um, and he ran the regular ERA, which is also something from another planet.
0: <laughs> Look, I mean, the Mets have had uh, a history of great pitchers, from Doc Gooden to Tom Seaver to Jerry Kuzman, uh, I mean, you can go down the list. But uh, I remember having a conversation a long time ago with Tim McCarver uh, when he was uh, doing games for NBC, and I asked him about Bob Gibson, and he's when he would they were teammates with the Cardinals. He remembers going out to the mound. He calls timeout. He starts walking out to the mound. He's ten feet from Gibson. And Gibson says, "What the blankety blank do you want?" <laughs> and, and McCarver said, "I was so intimidated, I said nothing." <laughs> he turned around, he walked back to home plate. <laughs> well, I
2: think, it's, I think the second half of that story is Gibson said, "The only thing you know about pitching is that you can't
0: hit it." <laughs> <laughs> that's a great. That's a great line, but I mean yeah. Gibson. Gibson. I mean Gibson struck fear into anybody who stepped in the batter's box. Uh,
2: yeah, I mean the stories are legendary, and look, you know. What you see now, I think, is almost a Jacob DeGrom backlash. You know, look, his innings pitched are, are, are modest. Part of that is because of the modern game. A lot of that is because he's had some injury issues this year. And so people, you know, love to now say, well, you know, when, when Bob Gibson had his 1.12 ERA in 68, I think his I think his eighth inning ERA was like 0.69. And his ninth inning ERA was like 0.57. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know that Jacob DeGrom has thrown a ball yet in the eighth or the ninth inning this year. I don't think he has. Um, but you know what? It's it's okay to separate the two. I mean, Bob Gibson was part of an era where that's what you did. Jacob deGrom is part of an era where this is what you do. I mean, it's not like he's he stands alone. Most most pitchers now, or starting pitchers right now, are five and fly. Uh, the, you know, the the durable ones go seven. Every now and again, you'll get your pitch count low, so you can go eight. And every once in a while, you're fortunate with a no hitter, so the manager lets you go nine. Uh, but that's just that, that that's just the way the rules are now. Whether you like it or not, whether, you know, whether it was preferable, you know, everybody wants to talk about Bob Gibson who would throw nine innings, but what about, uh, you know, Howard Vicaro back in the day, who was a terrible pitcher forced to go nine, and his ERA was nine and a half, you know, but they didn't want to give the ball to a relief pitcher because the relief, you know, the bullpen was a place where, where, where the bad pitchers lived. I mean, I, I don't necessarily know that was a preferable thing to the game either. I mean, sure, it's wonderful when you talk about Gibson and Koufax and Drysdale and Marischal. Seaver and Carlton, and all these guys, who would go nine, but um, you know, those were also the cream of the crop. And you know what? I mean, the cream of the crop in, 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 in modern baseball pitching, they might not go nine every time, but they, you know, they throw 110, 115 pitches when they need to. And sometimes that means going, going eight. And I mean, I, I don't mean to belabor this point more than you probably wanted to, but I remember even talking to Tom Seaver at one point, and he was like, you know, he thought would, that the commotion about pitch counts was just wrong. And his point was, look, I mean, back in my day, I had to throw my best stuff to the the best five inners in the lineup. First five in the lineup. Maybe the really good teams you'd have to worry about number six, too. After that, seven, eight, nine, I could throw my C game, and I was going to get those guys out. So I didn't care if I struck them out. I didn't care. So I was going to keep my pitch count that way. I was going to throw, you know, to the weak hitting shortstop. I was going to throw a get-me-over slider that he, you know, ground that effortlessly to the shortstop. He said, you know, people think I threw 200 pitches every day. I didn't. I just had a different game. Now you have, especially in the American League, you have nine guys who can, who can take you out of the park. That's a whole different game from a pitching standpoint, too. Uh,
0: I remember, uh, old enough to remember Whitey Ford, who never pitched more than seven innings. Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a great pitcher, particularly in the World Series. Uh, so Ford would go seven innings, and Louis Arroyo would come in go the last two, or the ninth inning, whatever. But that was then, this is now. If you're comparing yesterday with today, and today's baseball, the thing, a couple, one thing that continues to bother me is the DH. If one league has it, why doesn't the other? If one league doesn't have it, why doesn't the? You know, I think there has to be some continuity, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, and I think there will be. And I mean, unfortunately for people who are you know, kind of like the way things used to be, I think it's going to be it's going to be a universal DH as soon as next year, once the CBA is ratified. I mean, it makes. All the sense in the world for the uh, players' association because it's an extra job on every te- on you know every team in the National League. That makes sense. I think it's I think it's right for the game. Look, I mean, it's not just Jacob Degrom who's gotten hurt. You know, hitting this year. I mean, every year there's seven, eight, nine, ten pitchers who get hurt running the bases, trying to beat out a ground ball, and nobody wants that. I mean, it's bad enough that pitchers go down because their elbows blow out and they have you know rotator cuff surgery. But when they start being vulnerable because they're trying because they're asked to do something at high speed that they really couldn't even do in a beer league i mean that's where it gets kind of out of control and, and you know you could also make the argument i mean and i've come around on this because i used to be fiercely pro you know anti-dh but i don't want to see pitchers hit it's it's, it's it's a waste of time most of these guys are terrible and it's just you know i i, I get it i understand the purity of having everybody hit and all that stuff but you know, I I I think that we, we we
0: very quickly get used to the idea of a DH in the National League. I agree. Uh, I agree because uh, people want offense. They want to see. They want to. They're looking for the big ball. They're looking for the big fly. They're looking to see a team score a lot of runs. Look, I mean, yeah, defense is a necessity, but people, fans, want to see offense. It's simple as that. So uh, I think that, that that having the DH, I think, would be a good thing. Let me switch gears, Mike, and talk about. The two NBA teams in town and that's the the Nets uh, who went further than the Knicks, but there's more buzz about the Knicks, I think, than there is about the Nets. And I don't mean to to denigrate the Nets, but we all know why they're not going to win a championship. It's the injury factor to their superstars.
2: Agreed. And I think you're right about the level of buzz. I mean, I think that like, I think the Nets have an extraordinary national following I think they have probably more fans in nevada than they do in new york um you know new york is a nick stronghold and it's always going look it's clearly always going to be that if it's remained that through all the horrible years the last 20 seasons it's going to stay that way and you know the, the nets being in brooklyn isn't going to take brooklyn fans and make the knicks fans those people have generally been knicks fans from day one maybe they'll be able to attract a younger generation and maybe that over time will mean something but but also, you know, you're right. I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the number one thing you could have made this, you know, concern and I did a couple of times, you know, as early as when they acquired Harden, you know, the NBA playoffs are a grind. We talked earlier about the NHL playoffs. I mean, you might not be talking about guys who want to fight every game, but the NBA playoffs are a grind. They're hard to get through. Look at all the players who have been hurt during these playoffs. Uh, it's it, it's almost an aberration if you can survive. You know, one of the great things about LeBron is until this year, I mean, he he's really able to answer the bell every single time he had a playoff game he had to play. That's that's just not that's just not done. And uh, you know, the, the idea, you look know, in the next what makes the Nets special is you have three Hall of Fame players, all playing. You know, if not the peak of their primes, pretty close to it. And but they're also so little long in the tooth, and to to, to expect those guys to survive through you know possibly 28 postseason games especially when you limit their minutes and you know you load you manage their loads during the season it's just hard to ask for i'm not saying that it was inevitable this was going to happen but it certainly wasn't surprising when James harden's hamstring you know tweaked and it was less surprising when when, when Kyrie went down with the ankle I mean Kyrie's an extraordinarily fit basketball player but sometimes all you got to do is step on somebody else's foot and you're done that's what happened
0: yeah, I, I thought before the playoffs started, I thought the uh, the Nets were going to play the Lakers in the finals uh, because I couldn't see either one of those teams losing four games in a series. Well, that was pre-Anthony Davis couldn't play, uh, LeBron wasn't 100%, and we all know the rest of the story about the Nets. But having said all of that, I think there's a—and I'm just looking at this thing objectively for the Nets. Yeah, they've got the big three. Joe Harris didn't show up in the playoffs. His shooting— From three-point range which he mean led the league this year in three-point shooting he shot 33 percent in the playoffs not acceptable but they've got some other issues they're going to have to deal with i'm not sure that bench is as deep as it needs to be and i don't know that the nets uh, right now they don't have the rim protector that i think they're going to have to go out and get
2: well put it this way i mean whether they do or they don't have enough bench we really didn't see it because uh steve nash really shortened that bench i mean guys who were major contributors during the regular season, didn't see any run at all during the, during the postseason. And, you know, I, I, I don't think he's got a lot of criticism for that, but certainly it would be warranted if there was because, you know, I mean, I, I get it. You want to have your best players on the floor as much as possible. And, you know, absent Kyrie, I think Harden and, and Durant felt like they had to play every minute, but they really didn't. Nobody does. I mean, and there really is a difference between playing 48 minutes or, in the case of the overtime game, 53 minutes you know playing 42 minutes i mean you know, just giving a guy two minutes break you know in the first half and a three minute break in the second half you know it's, it, it's going to make a big difference and the only way you can do that is if you trust your bench and uh, you know nash said loud and clear that i'd rather have these these older hobbled players on the floor than you know the guys who were contributing all year long which i thought was a
0: curious choice well you know it could have been solved all duran has to do is wear a half the size shoe smaller
2: <laughs> you know not even that i think i think somebody measured it was three millimeters yeah, which is something, yeah. uh, that's going to be hard for nets fans to live to, to live with for the next couple of months because uh, i mean that would have been just an extraordinary uh, uh ending to that game in that series and look if they survive that series you know you give hard a couple extra days to get better maybe kyrie comes back and then all of a sudden you know you can start talking yourself into the nets again but uh yep you're right if, unfortunately instead of a size 14
0: and a half. He's a size fifteen, and there you go. Yeah. Well, look, I'm uh, I'm I'm impressed with this Atlanta Hawks team. To be honest with you, uh, I watched the way they came out last night, and I watched in the first half. I mean, they were outplayed, and yet they're only down three at, at, at the midway point. This Trey Young uh, is is uh, he's twenty two years old. I don't think he realizes that. I mean, this guy he's, he plays like a guy who's been in the league for fifteen years. He knows how to play. He knows how to distribute the basketball. And, oh, by the way, he can knock them down from deep. 48 points last night. uh, He got help. He had three players on that Hawks team last night that had double-doubles, Capella and Collins, as well as Young. This team, I wouldn't – look, is Milwaukee the better team? Yes. But (laughs) I wouldn't bet against this Hawks team. Not the way they're going. I'll
2: tell you something, Howard, as it pertains to New York, you know, when the – and they came in and you know beat the Knicks a gentleman's sweep in five games, I think there were some people who were quick to say, well, maybe the Knicks' you know, regular season wasn't all that. And, look, I, I actually picked the Hawks because they were healthy. And, you know, I I, you know, I, I love Trey Young. I mean, I, I don't want to say I predicted them going to the – making it out of the East, but I it didn't surprise me they beat the Knicks. Maybe it surprised me that they did it in five games. But, you know, the fact that they've now gone on to beat the Sixers, they now – stolen home court away from the Bucs, I do think the Bucs are going to come back in that series, but whatever, I mean, I I, I think certainly the more they win, uh, the better the Knicks actually look in retrospect, that it wasn't just they lost to some schlubby team in the first round of the playoffs, they lost to a team that wasn't only good, but was starting to learn how to win, and and win on the the game's biggest stage.
0: Hey Mike, before I let you go, uh, it's been 48 years since the Knicks won a title, uh, if it wasn't for that, I mean, I mean, it wasn't for the fact that the Jets are around. They would have the longest drought, but the Jets haven't won uh, a championship in, what, uh, 50-something years, 53 years. Uh, I like what they've done to this point. I like this uh, this hiring of Robert Sala. I like what I'm hearing about him. Uh, Joe Douglas is still going to be squarely on the hot seat in terms of providing a roster, but it's interesting to note that in their free agent acquisitions and in the draft, they basically acquired players to help their rookie quarterback, Zach Wilson.
2: Which is smart because I think when he went the other way when it came to Sam Darnold, and it you know, certainly ruined Darnold's time with the Jets, if not his entire career. I don't know that Darnold ever would have been confused with you know, Ken Stabler, but I don't think he was helped by the people that were around him, the team that were around him specifically, the skill players and the line that was around him. Uh, so it only makes sense. If you're going to build around another kid quarterback, give him, a, give him a chance, give him a fighting chance. And I think that's what the, what the Giants are doing with Daniel Jones, and I think that's clearly what the Jets are doing here. I mean, if, if Zach Wilson fails, it's, it's going to be because Zach Wilson fails. If, if, if you, it doesn't seem now that there's going to be a lot of mitigating circumstances to explain why and spread the blame around the way, the way, the way, the, the way there
0: was with Darnold. Do uh, you got any options to to go to game one of the NFL season in Carolina when Sam Darnold faces his old team? <laughs> uh, you,
2: you know, I'm sure we'll have that conversation sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, <laughs> that'd be fine by me. I, I I actually like the barbecue in Charlotte, so yeah. that's what I. That's what that's how I judge my road trips. Is how, how's it gonna how's it gonna help me have a good dinner? So.
0: <laughs> oh, you're right, and and downtown Charlotte has been rejuvenated. It's really beautiful down there now.
2: It's an underrated town.
0: I agree with that. Yep. Hey, Mike, always enjoy talking to you. And most importantly, you stay safe.
2: Thanks, Howard. Thanks
0: for having me on. Anytime. Here's Mike Vaccaro helping me take a bite of the big apple.